Hello and welcome to the Emotional Wood Podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition and my guest today has been a long time coming. So uh, my guest and I have been speaking on different platforms. I think it started on Twitter, then we moved to LinkedIn. I think we might have spoke over email as well and the phone at least once. Um, and I'm delighted, delighted today um, to get uh, to get our guest on the air. Now, where are we going today? Well, we are talking in particular about boundaries and burnout. Now, knowing who I've got coming uh, shortly, I think the conversation will take a few twists and turns along the way. And uh, the overall frame of what we're looking at today is around boundaries and burnout. So without further ado, let's get our guest on the air then. So welcome to the Emotion at Work podcast, Kelly Swingler. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Phil. Thank you so much for having me. You are so right. It has been a very, very long time coming, but I'm pleased we're making it happen. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, thank you so much for coming on. I know, um, yeah, I know our listeners are going to get so much out of the episode today, so I'm dead, dead excited um, about what's let's hope. Coming. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Well, let's begin then with um, our, as usual as we do with the Emotional Work podcast, let's begin with our innocuous and unexpected question. So mm-hmm. my innocuous question for today is, what is your preferred packing method? What is my preferred packing method? Yes. I've got so many different things going around in my head. Like if I'm packing for a trip, is that the direction you want you to take? You can take it, it any which way you want. We can do packing trips, okay, packing houses. So- it's entirely up to you. Yeah, so I suppose what immediately springs to mind for me is definitely kind of, well, I suppose packing in general, but I, th- I suppose if I think holidays, mm. hopefully we're coming into a lovely holiday season. Uh, but I suppose I'm also the same if I'm packing for events, if I am, you know, if I'm moving house. Um, so I suppose thinking about my methods are exactly the same. So I tend to, I'm definitely a list person. Okay. So I will list what's needed and where it needs to go. I will then make sure I've got everything laid out. I will tick it all off my list, pack it, and I'm ready to go. And I tend to do, I like to have, be organized and have everything ready at least the day beforehand. Wow. Okay. So I say wow, because that is just the so so opposite of me. It's untrue. Um, uh, So, um, my preferred packing method is so there's definitely a, a clothes rolling component. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah, definitely which wrong. Infuriates yeah. my wife incredibly. She's like, it's going to be so creased when we get them. I'm like, yes, but you can fit so much more stuff in. You've got to roll it. And I've also got some of those um, like pouches, the bags. If I'm packing for a trip, like holiday, and it's clothes, I've got some of those bags. So I roll it, put it in a bag, and then the bags squish it even more so I can pack double in a smaller bag okay so uh, you, so you need to send me a link to those i am i am unaware of these bags of which you mentioned um so uh and we'll put it in the show notes as well fair listener do not worry we will put links in the show notes too um, so if you could send me a link to these these bags that would be amazing because i've never heard of I them i will before. Yes. Great. Thank you. So look, there's one useful thing already. And we're only like three minutes into the podcast, I think. There we, there we go. go. How to fit more into a small Absolutely. bag. Um, uh, I, I often tease my parents-in-law because um, when they go away, they have a, 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 a list to pack. They tick it when it's been packed. 
and then they have they take the list away with them so that they can then sort of tick it again or cross it when it's packed to come home and then they do the, yeah, and they me. do the same when it's unpacked so they're like when they go so no so tickets so like oh yes i packed it to come home and then i've unpacked it as well and i just it, it makes me smile every time because yeah well they've gone one step further than me in ticking when you unpack it i know I'm... i think as long as long as i do I, I will say i do the same and take the list with me to make sure i have repacked <sighs> but i don't think i've ever ticked it to say it's then come out of the bag yeah no i was well, so the, the whole idea of a list is foreign to me I, I, that said though i went away last week and um i when i arrived i realized i didn't have a coat uh, I didn't have a razor or shaving foam. I I only had one pair of jeans for a week. Um, and uh, what else I'd forgotten? I'd forgotten something else as well. And I was like, oh, I've forgotten so many things. But it's okay. If you'd have had a list, Phil, if you'd have had a list, you'd have had it all. This is well, there's a, there's another statement for the for the edit of the podcast. If you had a list, you'd have had it all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose only if you've added it on the list in the first oh, yeah, place and true. i think that's so i suppose that's another thing for me so i will start listing so for so i'm i've got a big event in london next week i've already written my list of everything that i need to take mm-hmm. and that list has probably been there for about three weeks maybe four weeks of everything that i need to have but i maybe i keep tweaking the list and then everything will be packed the day before i go because i think sometimes you just need to like you think you've got it all and you think you're ready to go and then you realise you've missed two or three things like a razor, mm. a spare pair of jeans and a coat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I definitely packed with the weather outside my door as well. <laughs> I was like, what do I need to leave the house right now? Oh, I need these things. That's fine. Not thinking, didn't even check the weather where I was going. <laughs> every eventuality. I'm one of those every eventuality, like jumpers, uh, socks, sc- like even if I'm going on like a really hot holiday, I still always make sure that I have a jumper and a pair of like woolly socks. Wow, yeah. So my, my wife's similar, and I say, "Why are you bringing that? Well, we don't need that." Um, but anyway, so what is it that the lists give you then? So what is it that, that having the lists kind of gives you? I think for me, particularly because I know how my brain works, if I and I some of the coaching groups that I'm that I'm part of and also that I lead I've got um, a bit of a saying for me is actually if if it's down it's done so if I've written it there's something for me that's part of that processing so it's out of my head so I'm not constantly thinking about it I think if I don't have the list all I've got it, it you know kind of going around in my head is what if like it's more kind of what if I forget something what if this happens what if this happens what if this happens whereas once I've got my list and like I said I there may be I haven't touch wood yet forgotten anything that I've written on the list um but I think just having that in some way it calms my mind gives me the confidence to say yes I've got it and then as soon as I know it's ticked off the list, I know it's in my bag, I don't need to worry about it. So again, I'm not having to constantly check, you know, like, have I got my passport? Have I got my tickets? Have I got, have I got, have I got? Because actually, if it's ticked off the list, then I've got it. Okay. Um, and at the risk of asking quite a um, personal question quite quickly... No, so that could it. be... So I guess when I, when I, when I, when I hear that then... So there's a lot of what ifs. What if this? What if this? What if this? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of you describing your 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 mind racing and thinking about things a lot. 
um, yep. and, and a feeling of um, confidence or reassurance because if it's if it's mm-hmm. down, it's done. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I can imagine without the list, then that must that sound that sound. I don't want to I don't want to be kind of putting labels on it. So how does when you don't have a list? Maybe that's a better question. So because I was going to make a statement before, so that's a question instead. So when you don't have a list, how does that feel? Oh, it's chaos, absolute chaos. Um, I think so, so lots of people, and I think whether this is packing or whether this is work, whatever it is, lots of people are always really surprised at just how much I can get done over a relatively short space of time. That is nothing though, compared to the speed in which I can, I can have thoughts and, and do things. So for example, last week, um, I was, uh, we'd had a, I think we, I'd been, because I'm a part of a group coaching session as well as running my own. Mm. And we'd had a session, I think the, a week last Thursday. And I had something in my head, like so I knew something was coming, but I can have maybe between five and 10 ideas a day. I mean, again, I, I joke with my partner sometimes, like if I could just make a business out of selling all of my ideas and, okay. and, not, and kind of not not really have to do anything then you know I'd, I'd probably be uh retired on a beach in Bali somewhere uh already but yeah I've got I've got this kind of so the the ideas will come but last Tuesday morning I just had this idea that this was a project that I needed to do so I sat with the idea on Tuesday on Wednesday the web page was done on Thursday I promoted it by Friday I'd sold I'd sold two places on this program okay and it's the speed in which I, I can do that. I, I, I'm able to get those things done. But I think from my from my head, a lot of the times I, I can't even keep up with the pace in which in which the thoughts are coming. And I've I suppose the whether it's journaling, whether it's list writing, um, I definitely send myself emails. If I don't have a notepad to hand, I'm one of these that will just constantly email myself. I mean, sometimes I switch on my emails and it's like, you have 50 new emails. I'm like, where have all they come from? And it's, <laughs> oh, they and were it's, from me. It's me. <laughs> yeah, they're all from me. Um, so I think, I, I, yeah, I think that's definitely just my way of processing. It's almost like if I, if I trust enough that somewhere, either the idea or the thought or the action or task or something that needs to be done if it's out of my head that then allows my thoughts to just go that little bit slower and allows me to then really concentrate on on what it is that I need to do okay that probably sounded really rambly no no not at all um uh, it was yeah it was really useful um and so you began with chaos then Mm. um and and I, I suppose what you did explicitly, which I was doing implicitly, was taking the discussion we were having around lists and packing uh, broader than that into kind of broader workplace um, mm-hmm. and workplace and or work um, and or other things. I was, I was taking it there. And what I liked was that you did that explicitly, which was nice. Um, and so when when I think about the two topics that we said we really wanted to focus on today, um, one of yeah. which being boundaries and the other one being burnout. And I know you've got a, a book coming out soon as well called Mind the Gap, which we'll, we'll talk about a bit more as well. I have, yes, thank you. Um, and, and so for those, and, and, and I'm happy to move on from lists um, as and when we, we want or need to. And at the same time, I'm wondering, is the, is the list making one of those boundaries for you then? Because it allows you to put a boundary around those thoughts and go right I know they're secure and they're safe in this in this boundaried space 
um, which gives me then the the ability to slow down and um, and those things. Or is it do the list do something different? Um, maybe I'm making a link that doesn't exist, but I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are. I'd never thought about it in that way, but I suppose now you've said it. Yeah, I think I I just have the. I suppose, yeah, I, I think it is a boundary. And that's not to say that, particularly with all of the emails that I send myself, that's not to say that every single email I send or every single idea that I write down or every single list that I make gets done. Mm-hmm. I, when I, and when I say it's down, it's done. I think that is more about getting it out of my head. If it's something so, again, with all of these ideas that I have on a on a daily basis, some of those will never, ever make the light of day. Mm. But I've got them out of my head, so I don't need to have them going around and fizzing from in, in that perspective. Sometimes I can relook at it. And like I said, sometimes I send myself emails. I just think that's like that's crazy or that's rubbish. If I think that instantly when I've re-seen it, then I'll just delete that email okay. like it's irrelevant. Yeah. If it's something that I want to take forward, I've then got a get done file in my emails and, and in, in one of my many notebooks if it makes it to the get done list, then I'll get it done. And that again, that doesn't mean that I have to do it today. Mm. That might be actually that's a project for the next quarter or it might be that's something that I want to look at next year or it might be, okay, yeah, let's start that today or let's do that tomorrow. But if it's in the folder, it meant enough for me at the time to be able to put it there. And then when it comes to it, then I can process where it goes and what that looks like. And I, and I think, yeah, mentally for me... I think that is a really important boundary. And I think if I were to extend on that further, Mm. I think from a journaling perspective, there is something in it for me about the writing, about the knowing that it's gone somewhere. So journaling has been a huge, a huge part of, I suppose, my well-being, a huge part of my boundaries, a huge part in helping to move through and, and overcome the burnout and keep me aware if I'm in danger of coming close to, I'm not going to say burnout again, because I, I would hope now that I'm, I'm at a point where I wouldn't get to there because I'm self-aware enough and I've changed enough to stop that from happening. Mm. But I can still very quickly go to a point of exhaustion. And so I think just getting it out of my head, whether that's an email, a list, whatever, that allows me that that boundary, that gives me that space. It calms my mind, calms my thoughts, and then allows me to do what I need to do. Okay. Uh, there was a lot in there that I'd like to come back to. So, um, uh, so can we talk about boundaries a bit more then? So I've made a, a link um, that you said you hadn't made before. So that's that's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Um, and 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 so. What was it about boundaries in particular that that are important to you, or that you know that you know when we when we discuss what should we talk about today, you're like, yeah, this you know this was the first thing out of your mouth. Boundaries and burnout were the were the two things. Mm. So, what is it about boundaries that are so important for for you? I think it was definitely a lack of boundaries that got me to the point of burnout. Okay. I think when I speak to, so I've now been out of corporate and in, I suppose, my my own businesses for just over eight years now. And every client that I speak to, whether that's a corporate client, whether that's a CEO, whether that's a leadership team, exec team, uh, whether I'm working one-on-one with somebody, boundaries are always the thing 
that come up. Okay. And whether that be around energy or communication or listening or, I don't know, remit of the role or what can and can't be done or what can and can't be said. Mm. I think boundaries there just seems to be the the number one it may not always come up first but that's usually the point that that we kind of get to it's either a lack of boundaries or or in some cases too many that are either stunting yeah, okay. growth or or causing issues and as i then look back and again i've i've put some bits about this uh, in in the book but as i look at that i think it was stepping away from all of my personal boundaries that definitely contributed to the severe burnout that I experienced in 2013 and I think the more that I talk about it I just think if more people more clients more all of us in general if we could really understand the importance of those boundaries I think we would be able to eliminate a lot of issues that we see in business, a lot of issues that we see in organisations, a lot of issues that we see in families, a lot of issues with health, mental health, all of our well-being. I think for me, boundaries are, are, are a really big one there. I know, I know, even you know, you and I have spoken before about the importance of sleep, haven't yes, we? Have, yeah. You know, like a like a good morning starts the night before. Mm. And, and yet, you know, if you have no boundaries around what time you're switching off tech, what time you stop drinking caffeine or alcohol, what time you're having your meal, what time you get to bed, um, whether you've got TVs or devices or whatever on in your room, they can all, you know, they're all boundaries that we may not necessarily even think about. But if you haven't got any of those in place and then you're wondering why you're not sleeping, why you're exhausted, why you're stressed, why you're snapping at colleagues, why, you know, all of those sorts of things. And you speak about just one boundary, you know, turning off your tv or your phone or whatever at a decent amount it's like oh, okay yeah that makes a difference mm. and, so, and you said about um when you stepped up you said when i stepped away from my personal boundaries that mm. led to you know my severe burnout in 2013 um mm. so what did that stepping away so either what did that step maybe there's two questions um and, and i don't know which order to go in or maybe i asked them both at the same time so one is what were those personal boundaries that you were stepping away from? Um, and then I think the follow-up is, um, and what impact did that have? I guess it culminated in burnout, but were there steps on the way to get there? So maybe let's do those two questions in order then. So what were the personal yeah. boundaries that you stepped away from, would you say? So I think, <clears throat> can I do it in that order or do we need to talk about it? The other oh, way? I don't mind. You, do no, no, you, so t- you choose. I think, yeah, it's all right. My brain is processing as as we go through it. So it, I probably, yeah, I probably need to do them in reverse. So I think, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. The organisation that I was in, I really had known from the first day that I walked into that organisation that I should not be there. I had this enormous gut feel that was just like, get out now. Okay. And yet I, there was something in me that made me think actually maybe I am exactly what this organization needs in order to get the change that's needed and if I'm feeling this strongly about it this is this is where I need to go there were lots of issues within within that organization um within the exec team communication leadership or lack of leadership Mm. um the the silo working the backstabbing the bitching that it was it was just 
awful. Like people being excluded from projects and meetings, myself included in some of those sorts of things, by two particular members of the exec team that I was supposed to be working really closely with. Um, So all of those things. And I think there was something, and and I don't know if I had... It's really difficult to say because I can't say like that was the point that I burnt out. We we know that burnout is a slow burn, mm. right? And there are lots and lots of signs and stages. It doesn't happen overnight. But somewhere within that process, it was almost like from a personal boundary perspective, I had convinced myself or there was something in me that said, right, you just you've got to be trying harder. You've got to be pushing harder. You've and within that push harder kind of mentality the person a lot of the personal boundaries that went out of that for me the first was absolutely around self-care so things like my morning yoga practice that I'd been doing for years went completely out the window because in my head if I didn't do the morning yoga I could get on the earlier train to get into the office sooner to be able to hopefully try and preempt some of these issues so there was that one Another big thing was, you know, taking regular breaks throughout the day. Well, again, I let that one slide because it was, I think there was something again around, like I've got to be in every meeting and every conversation because this is how I, I, like I, and I think a bit about it at the time, just like, it was just crazy. But I somehow I'd got, if I can keep a handle on all of this stuff, I can help to navigate some of these issues. I can help to prevent some of these issues and I can start to change the culture within within this organisation. Okay. But I think that was going in tandem at the same time as already being in a... In a or, or moving towards that state of burnout. Okay. So things like regular breaks, um, my morning yoga practice, the amount of water that I was drinking. I mean, I've never been a coffee drinker in my life and I was kind of being fueled by just tea and coffee all day long. Um, after work would be either drinks with colleagues, drinks with my team, trying to, you know, taking some of my team out for, for drinks after work to try and calm them down and, you know, give them the support that they needed. Mm. If I wasn't doing that, I'd be having a drink on the train on the way home. Um, and, you know, then I'd kind of get home. I had no switch off time whatsoever. So some nights I'd be working until 11, half 11, one o'clock, dealing with emails, trying to process stuff, trying to get my thoughts and, and a culmination of thoughts down on paper. Sleep went out the window. And so then the cycle continued. So I think really all of the personal boundaries that I now, that I have always classed as really important, mm. I had that period pretty much where every single one of them went and i i'm still i still struggle to i suppose distinguish between whether it was the moving towards burnout that caused me to step away from all of those boundaries or whether it was the stepping away from those boundaries that sped up the process of burnout and it may not be that they were separate. It may be that they were both happening at exactly the same time. Yeah, okay. um, and so I, I, I can't give a definitive answer on that, but I know that there were, th- you know, those things were happening at the same time. And it just got me to the point of like burnout and worse, I suppose, really. Mm. Okay. Um, I left a slightly longer pause there because I'd really like to ask a question and, and I don't know if it's okay to do so because um, 
one of the things I'm reflecting in the moment. And one of the things that we didn't do at the start was do a, a boundaries kind of conversation around mm-hmm. where 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 can I go, where can't I go, with there any you know are there any questions that you don't want me those things, or or even for me to say, um, if you don't want to answer a question that I asked, then you can say I don't want to answer that, and that's okay. No, go for it. I'm an I'm an open book, Phil. I'll answer anything. So I was really in, so thank you, um, and I was really interested in where you said you described how you convinced yourself that you had to try harder and push harder. Mm. And what were you pushing to or what were you tr- what, what were you trying to get to? What was the what was the goal here? I don't nec- I don't think there was a goal. I I think a large part of that really was that I I had reached my goal. Uh so okay. I so again if I, if I kind of backtrack from that so I um I I started my my management leadership career straight after my A levels I was going to go to university I was going to be a lawyer um wanted to go into law I did two work experience placements whilst I was at school and all I'd been interested in really was criminal law and I did these two work experience placements based on criminal law mm. went to got the opportunity to go to court a lot with uh, some of these uh, solicitors and barristers, a lot of the people that were in court whilst I was there in the, um, I don't know what you call them, in the the gallery, gallery, were people that I had, that were people that lived in my community. And all of them were found not guilty. And I knew that every single one of them was. Okay. And so almost overnight, this... I suppose dream that I'd had ever since I was I was a young girl of I'm going to go and I'm going to be a you know I'm going to be a lawyer I'm going to be a solicitor and I'm going to be amazing and this is all the stuff that I'm going to do had almost gone overnight and whilst my teachers were still pushing you know you need to go to university you know you're a, you're a top student you've you've got brains you've I just thought I can't I can't see me going to university to not know what it was necessary that I wanted to study, to not have that real passion or drive or understand what that end outcome is, mm. whilst at the same time getting myself into loads of debt. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around it. But I went into what I was doing at the time working, I was working part-time in retail, as I'm sure many of us do as, as we're going through school, and started to speak to some of the, some of the managers and some of the, I suppose, the support staff. Yeah that were working behind the scenes. And so I started a management training scheme uh, with the John Lewis partnership okay. and uh, amazing training scheme. I worked with, I worked for Waitrose to start off with. Then I fell pregnant with my twin sons when I was 19, I had my sons three months after my 20th birthday. And yet I was still, I, I can do this. Yeah. I had supportive parents. I just knew that I wanted to keep growing my career. And I think at that point, again, maybe part of because of where I was living, part of maybe because of my age, I had set myself, I think, this task at the time of wanting to show that just because I was a young mum didn't mean that I wasn't capable of still being able to progress a career. I got in my head that every single thing that my sons had, I would have paid for. I would, you know, I would have been the one provided myself and and their dad. We were going to provide for them. We were going to ensure that my sons would have every possible opportunity that they could. And and my career kept progressing and and my career kept progressing. I started to specialise in kind of the HR and L&D space almost really immediately after I'd done that initial two-year training programme. And 
I wanted to, what I, what I wanted to do at that time was really stop what I call this Monday to Friday dying syndrome, right? Where we spend all day Sunday dreading going to work on the Monday. Mm-hmm. We, we go through really slowly and sluggishly the whole week, just living for the weekend. And, and I was noticing more and more that friends and family were all just so despond like disappointed and frustrated about work about their managers about their pay about their career opportunities and how people were talking and, and I think that became my my driving force okay. and I'd said to myself I don't know at what point again that I said it but I started to progress really really quickly within the HR within the HR space and I think in terms of the conversations and being able to simplify a lot of stuff um, you know, like I haven't, I haven't done a like an annual performance appraisal since two thousand and eight. I started to strip out policies and procedures. I wanted to really focus on communicating with people, listening to people, engaging with people. Mm. And through some of the engagement workshops that I started, kind of two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, with the employer that I was with then. Um, when I joined, I think they were something like number fifty in the Times one hundred. Like I left with them at at, at number one. Mm. Um, we'd in 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 improved and increased things like employee engagement trust in leadership they'd gone from kind of scores of kind of 50 and 60 percent to up to kind of late 90s um with that customer satisfaction customer engagement had all improved profitability had improved all of those all of those sorts of things and i think that's why i was headhunted really for for the ultimately the role that i went into but i had this thing that by the time, so by the time I was 40, my sons would be 20. Yeah. And at 40, I was going to be this global HR director working for some global, huge organisation, travelling all over the place, making the world of work better for people, stopping this Monday to Friday dying and ensuring that everybody loved their jobs. And I got to, I wasn't global HRD, but I was HRD at 30. Mm. And I think, so when I went into that role there was a really huge part, I think just a really huge driver. I was 30 years old and and according to the CIPD at the time was like the UK's youngest HR director. I was working in an organisation of like, we had 4,000 people, 3,500 full-time and then kind of 500 temps and contractors. I had this huge team. I had this huge opportunity. I'd been told the company was going to be a challenge. I don't think I'd realised just how much. Mm. But I think there was something about, firstly, I'd been headhunted for this position. Like, we definitely think you're the right person for the role. But I think internally, I also had, like, I'm the youngest person at at director level. I was the only woman for a period of time at that level. I was the only one with kids my age at that level. Um, I was the only one that didn't live in London at that level. Mm. And I think I could see all of the ways in which I was different to everybody else at that level, I could see the issues that were going on within that culture and within that organisation. And I just think somehow it was like I could, like I just felt I can use my difference and all of my experience, all of the really good stuff that's got me to this point and the reason that this organisation recruited me in the first place, I can use all that to make this organisation amazing. And and that became my driver. Mm. I wanted to prove that I was capable. I wanted to prove that 
I could do it. I wanted to prove that the fact that I was a woman or the fact that I was only 30 or the fact that I was, you know, a, a, a mum of 10-year-old sons, the fact that I was commuting in every day. I wanted to prove that I could do all of this stuff. And I think in terms of trying to prove that, to who, I, I don't know. I think, again, I think part of it was I was trying ultimately somehow trying to prove it to myself. Okay. Um, but somewhere in that wanting to prove... That was where I stepped away from it because I thought, right, I've, I have to be working harder to prove that I'm the right person. I've got to be working harder to prove that women can do this. I've got to. And so I think a lot of it was I felt like I had this enormous weight on my shoulders in some ways to almost be, you know, this kind of advocate for the next generation of, of women or, you know, to show that we could do anything that we, we put our minds to. But I think all of that weight on my shoulders, in addition to the really toxic environment that I was working in, it was almost like they were just clashing. Mm. And and that was, I think, what, again, kind of contributed ultimately to, to where I got to. Uh, so one of the things I was curious about was to, to whom um, we were trying to prove it, but you talked about that already. So um, so and, and do you do you feel that 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 want desire or need to prove yourself now no so when did that no. shift i think as i was as i was coming out oh why did that really shift i'm gonna say i suppose if i'm being perfectly honest maybe only over the last kind of i don't know five years or so okay um so i hit that burnout in 2013 and I, at the time, I didn't want to admit what it was. So I'd, I'd gone back into work in January 2013, having had some really difficult conversations at the end of 2012, basically being told that we were going through this huge restructure, but there was lots of stuff that was just unethical and not right and lots of things that they didn't want. They were just immoral and unethical in so many ways. Mm. And... I remember just basically being told before the Christmas, like, you're just going to make, like, Kelly, you're just going to make this happen. Like, this is what we're saying is going to be done and you're, you're going to make it happen. And we were working with one of the one of the top four consultancies and all of the consultants that I spoke to, they're like, this is what we're going to do and you're going to make it happen. And a lot of that didn't, really didn't sit right with me. But I think I thought, okay, so if I, if I have to do this, I'm going to do it to the very best of my ability and I'm going to protect as many people as I possibly can. I went into work in the January after the Christmas and within a couple of days, like the, the stomach pains that I was experiencing, like I couldn't, I couldn't stand up straight. I couldn't walk properly. Mm. I was being rushed in and out of hospital and I was passing out on the train on the way home. Um, I had all sorts of, all sorts of stuff going on and I was undergoing lots of tests and nobody could give me an answer. And, and that was going on for like seven months um, I ended up having two operations in 48 hours in the July. And it was my son's, I think, and I, and I, I think probably a lot, a lot of people will relate to this. I think when we're working, and whether this is our own businesses or, or whether mm -hmm. whatever, whatever sector that we're in or job that we're doing, I think we almost mask or al almost mark our health based on whether we are cap whether we're able to work or not right i'm if i'm not if i'm not ill enough 
to not be able to go to work, then I'm not ill. If I'm not sick enough, if I'm not in, you know, if I'm, if I can still get to work, if I can still get myself out of bed and get to work, then I'm not really that ill. Okay. And it was whilst I was recovering from these two operations, I sat on the sofa. My sons had come in from school, sat on the coffee table in front of me. And my reaction was, you know, because I could just see the look on their faces. And I just remember saying, like, hey, don't worry. Mum's going to be absolutely fine. I'm going to be back at work soon. You know, like that was my, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. I'm going to be back at work and everything will be okay. Mm. And like, what, I mean, one of my sons just looked, I mean, they looked at each other and then looked at me. And I just remember one of them saying to me, like, mum, your job is killing you. And it was like, oh my God, like I've been going through this, like seven months of in and out of hospital. And what have I been doing to myself? And what have I been doing to my family? And it was that night, if not the following day, that I just like I've got to I've got to stop this. And I had this realization again, stepping away from these boundaries. I'd been stepping away from my core values. I'd really kind of lost all of me mm-hmm. in this burnout and and within this organization. And I thought I kind of had it now. So I was like, right, I'm going to go back to work, and I'm I'm not going to. I'm not going to negotiate anymore. I'm not going to compromise me anymore. These are my values. This is who I am. This is what I do. If they don't like it, I'll go elsewhere. And I had this thing kind of burning, burning desire, I suppose, really, that you can just influence more change if you start your own business. And I'd heard myself say in a, in a workshop that I was part of, I'm just going to start my own business. So within three months, I'd left corporate, started uh, my first company, Chrysalis Career. I'd started that. Um, we were working with clients, but I just knew that I needed to still be doing something about this burnout. Like what had got me to this point? Mm. And I think five or six months after me leaving this organization, my replacement had died in her sleep whilst away at a leadership residential. Um, and I was just like, I was horrified. Like I'd, I'd worked with this woman in some capacity whilst I had been within this organization mm. She'd seemingly been healthy. You know, she left kids that were not much older than my sons. Um, And I then found out that nobody had said to me the years that I was at this organisation that the previous two or two, I think two or three of the previous HR directors, the three that had been within that organisation had all left because of severe health problems. Okay. And I got to that, like, so there's, there's kind of like four or five of us one of us who is no longer here, the rest of us that has got to this point, like why why has firstly an organisation been able for this to happen, but also why is a sector, like why is this only happening to the HR within the organisation? And I remember reaching out to the CIPD and saying, what are you doing to support HR? Mm. Like this burnout is real and, you know, like it's, it's killed somebody and, and what are we doing about it? And, and I remember them just saying to me, you just need to contact your EAP provider. And I thought oh, it's not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that, I suppose, was part of part of my quest. And so I, in addition to my coaching, then I wanted to understand where stress had come from, what was causing stress, what was causing burnout. And I did a, a neuroscience qualification. I did a hypnotherapy qualification. I did a psychotherapy qualification. I wanted to really understand what we could be doing to reduce stress. I started to look more into yoga and meditation and empowerment techniques and breath work and and all of this stuff but what I hadn't done within all of that process 
was really allow myself to heal from the burnout that I'd experienced mm. because that impacted me mentally, emotionally and physically. But I took, I want to change the world of work and change the culture of this organisation and this is all the pushing that I'm going to do. And really I just swapped all of that pushing for growing and developing all of these new skills and, and all of these different things that were then going to help the entire HR profession mm. And stop the whole of the HR profession experiencing burnout. You know, I created the world's first mental well-being for HR program. I was doing all of this stuff, like this is where we're going to go. And I hit burnout again in 2015. And it was then that I realized it's got to stop. Like I have nothing to prove to anybody. I don't need to be the best. I don't need to do this stuff single-handedly. I am not going to fix burnout in the HR profession. And I, I know, you know, again, I've, I've sh I shifted during kind of last year and, and into lockdown to just mm. be able to work with with more women. Because, again, I think, you know, the, the challenges that women experience in the workplace are, are still unique to women. The burnout gender gap has doubled since 2019. Um, we've got one in three women experiencing burnout and considering leaving their roles. We've got 57% of women who are struggling to switch off from work. And I suppose I just feel that, that that's become my mission to stop that from happening. But the big change for me now is that I do not need to do that single-handedly and I do not need to jeopardise my own well-being to prove to other people or to help and support other people from getting them to that point of burnout. Because I, I can't... I can't do the work that I need to do if I'm not here. Yes. That, that's, I think, the realisation that I got to. Um, I feel like I, I want to say, I'm sorry you had to experience all of those things, or I'm sorry that you experienced all of those things. Um, I don't need to apologise. I think I've, and again, I think part of that for me now, and... and I do say it quite lightheartedly, but I genuinely mean it. I kind of feel like if I hadn't have gone through all of that stuff, I, I don't think I'd be able to help the clients and, and that, I, that I help as deeply as, as I do. And I, I've even put it on my website now. Like I, I kind of feel like I did all of that hard work so that I, other people don't have to. Mm. Yeah, okay. So I've been able to, I think, turn that into a positive but that, and I think that's become my driver. Like I am living proof that you do not have to do all of this stuff. You are worthy enough. You are enough. You can set the boundaries. You can switch off. You can do all of this stuff. Like, you know, literally, if you died in your sleep today, you would be replaced by your employer tomorrow. Hmm. Um. So there were a couple of statistics that you mentioned earlier on around the um, uh, the was you, do you call it the gender burnout gap? I think is what you called it. Burnout gender yes. gap. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then the percentage of um, you talked about fifty-seven percent of women um, report um, having their sleep interrupted. No, I can't remember. Yeah. So fifty. Yes, fifty-seven percent of women are reported to. Um, are reported to be unable to switch off from work. That so it's it. literally like not putting the laptop down, not closing the laptop, still responding to emails. So 57% of women are struggling to switch off from work, mm. quite literally, yeah. um, for fear that it will basically harm their careers. 
as a re- and then I, as a result of that, we've got one in three women who are considering leaving their careers or stepping down from their roles because they are at the point of burnout. And and again, like I look at those, you've probably got a question there, Phil, but if you don't mind if I no, just go, on. Finish no, go, go. Yeah, yeah. and then go. But I think I look at those stats. So I get lot, all of the stats out there. I don't, I don't, if anybody wants to argue with me, give you know, send me send me send me the information. But I think what the data is telling us is that you know organisations that have got a greater greater gender diversity within their top teams. So if we've got an equal split between men and women, those organisations are outperforming those that don't by up to twenty five percent. So if you think you're a quarter more effective and more profitable, if you have this gender gender split at that top team Mm. so if we forget like if we totally forget the human ethical and moral side of having that equality at that top level if we were able to forget the human element altogether it makes business sense and financial sense to have that split and yet we are seeing huge numbers of women leaving corporate leaving their roles, setting up their own businesses or going, you know, kind of solopreneurs mm-hmm. because they are getting to that point of burnout. And again, if we look at those figures, 57% of women struggling to switch off. If we say half of the women in the workforce are struggling to switch off, which is then leading to one in three women having to leave the workplace because of burnout, we're never going to get that gender equality at the top. If we don't get that gender equality at the top... I, I like I, I can't get my head around then what happens because in order for business performance to improve and the profitability to improve surely all of the things like in communication engagement leadership they've all got to be rising as well so I think if we look at the whole of that picture if we've got all of those women leaving what then does that happen what happens to the workplace mm-hmm. if we don't then get the gender equality what then happens to the organisations? And then what's the wider impact of that? Like, it, for me, it just makes total sense for us to be saying, let's stop burnout. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so you were right, I did have a question. Um, it was more of a request, actually. Um, was um, after we finish um, recording today, could you send me a link to the, the the places, the sources for the different kind of stats that we're kicking around, if that's okay? Yeah, it's, it's the um, yeah, it's the Deloitte Women at Work report, and then there's a McKinsey one as well. Yeah, that's well. fine. If you can send me the links, and then I'll put those in the show notes then, so that um, for those listeners that want to go and kind of have a read of the, of the research that sits around it, then... Um, then they can go and do so. Yeah. Um, I also feel like I want to, because um, I can imagine, um, how do I want to frame it? So there's, there's a risk of um, um, what about re happening. In terms of Kelly, you're talking about women, and you're talking about the you know, the percentage that are struggling to switch off, and so on and so on. Um, there's a risk of water battery, and says, "Oh, what about men?" Um, uh-huh. And and I guess I want to make my position on it clear. I think by saying um, there is there doesn't have to be an or 
It doesn't have to be an either no. or. It's an and. No. You know, so yes, yeah. all of these things can be happening to women and there can be horrible things happening to men as well. Um, um, or women can be reporting these things in the different surveys that in the different sources that we're citing and men can be reporting things too. So um, I guess I want to... Um, I want to make yeah I, want to, I guess I want to make my stance on that clear in terms of saying yes I agree with you and I'm sure there are other challenges that men face in the workplace too around burnout and other challenges and so on and we're not talking about those today that they exist and we're talking about um something different today does that sound all right yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and and again you know we we look at we still talk about particularly when it you know campaign against um what is it campaign it's the calm i've lost the thing campaign against living miserably yeah. um that does a lot of stuff around you know kind of particularly around men's mental health you know we we know stress is on the increase for men we know suicide rates are still on the increase between the ages of 17 and 25 and they, they're continuing you know they, they're also rising between those men between 25 and 44 like we, we we know those those things are happening i'm not saying this is this is a women only issue at all and i've also um i, I, I can't get any information on it but again a, a few months ago all of the reports that I look at from a burnout perspective split between women and men. And they also split between white women and white men and other. Mm. And I don't think any of that reporting is is clear enough. You know, we're not white and other. And I think all of those reports need to be highlighting that more. Some of them will break them down a bit more. And I think the one that I've, I've just mentioned will break it in. I think it's three or four, for example, different categories um, that we, that we need to be kind of looking at, but I I was also curious actually what is where are we or are we is anybody asking the question about what think you know what what burnout looks like in trans people or non-binary or you know those those that don't um, necessarily associate there's I can't see anything that talks about those in any of the LG lgbt is it qia plus yes, i think that's right. have i got that yeah, the right yeah, way around yeah. there we go so I, ca I can't see any statistics that relate to anybody other than male or female and i also think that we need to be doing a lot to change that so as that data comes you know if they, I, and i even thought is that is there a way that i i could do something with that and then that felt too large because again do i want to you know do i want to save the world and go back to what i was doing before or do i need to be looking and looking after myself in the process and i would love to see a much more rounded relevant data set because we can't help those people we can't help all people if we don't understand the issues that all people are experiencing yeah agree agree wholeheartedly so um uh, part of the the findings that you're citing have been have been reinforced by the findings that um that we had from the research that we did some primary research back in 2021 um and we looked at three well-being outcomes so one being about the extent to which people have been stressed in the last four weeks another one yeah. the extent to which work has kept people awake for the last four weeks and the extent to which people find pleasure in their work um, and within that, we asked we asked a real range of demographic questions. We we missed one thing, which I, I kick myself about regularly, which is we missed asking about um, any disability um, or uh -huh. any condition that may make the workplace um, experience different from from a uh -huh. um, from an able-bodied individual. 
um, and, and we got some, and we asked about sexual orientation. We asked about um, uh, gender identification. We asked about um, uh, ethnicity. And, and one of our biggest challenges is our data set is too small. So we can look at the, the, the we can look in a broad way, but when we try and when we try and sort of dig into difference, um, uh, the, our, data, our sample size is, is a bit too small to do anything with it. So we've got a project this year where we're looking to to, to specifically identify um, uh, individuals from different demographic groups and to bring them together and say, well, what does this look like for you? How does this show up for you? Because yeah. I'm a middle-aged white man and Ashley, my colleague, is you know a, a younger white female um, and, and we neither of us can, can speak to what it's like for anyone that's other than us, really. So, yeah. you know, yeah. we, I, I'm with you completely. You know, the, the, the data is lacking and we need to, and yeah, there needs to be more more done to understand that um yeah absolutely um so one of the things you said towards the beginning then was about how um you weren't sure if it was um did me changing or or or, uh, relinquishing or relaxing or not sticking to the boundaries lead to burnout or or did burnout Mm -hmm. lead to those things um and so uh what would be, um, and I guess maybe this is the quintessential point in the podcast where I should be asking, what are the, you know, if you were on, put yourself in the listener's shoes, then what should they be, what should they be thinking about, or what would be your recommendations for um, either creating those boundaries and/or av- avoiding that burnout? So I, with all of the work, with all of the clients that I've worked with, my own experience, I, I come back to three things. And the three things are absolutely know and understand who it is that you are. I I talk about that, about kind of core-led living and leading. So who are you at your core? Mm -hmm. Because I think when when we really, really understand who we are, then things like boundaries become easier. Because a lot of the time we feel that we can't create boundaries you know, if, if, if I create a boundary, I'll feel guilty. If I create a boundary, I'll upset someone. If I create a boundary, I, I can't give or I, I can't do this or I can't do that. And and actually, I think it, it really comes to when you know and understand who you are at your core, you create the boundaries because they are the right thing to do. Okay. And you create those boundaries really free from guilt because you and you also understand that in you creating and, and set and well setting and, and maintaining those boundaries, you are also really giving permission and role modeling boundaries for everyone around you. If you don't respect your boundaries, nobody else will. Mm-hmm. So the first is understand who you are at the core. That will then allow you to set and maintain those boundaries for all of the right reasons. And then in addition to that, you take time out for yourself. So I think for me, it's it's those three things. And again, I'm not going to say that they're the easiest three things in the world. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not saying go meditate for 20 minutes a day and that's going to fix all of your problems. Um, you, know, you know, those those three things can be quite hard work. You know, when we start doing that inner work, understanding who we are, creating that level of self-awareness, uh, asking those questions of ourselves that maybe we don't want to answer, that can that can be really difficult work. Yeah. But I also think these the earlier earlier 
And the sooner that we can start to do that, again, I think the more that we be, we start to eliminate, or the sooner we start to eliminate other other issues in the workplace, in our personal lives, and for everybody else around us. Like, you know, I think communication issues, a lot of those come because either I'm afraid to speak my truth or I'm afraid of you hearing it. And so we think, well, actually, let's not have that because we don't want to upset anybody. Actually, if the only way for us to move forward is to have that communication, if part of who I am at the core is to say, I'm going to be really brave and have this conversation with Phil or whoever yeah. because it's going to cause too many issues if I can't, then there's no communication issue. And we can have that open conversation that says, this might be a really difficult question, this might be a really difficult conversation, but we have to have it if we're going to move forward. And, and I think, again, a lot of the, the things that we talk, you know, whether it be communication, relationship building, again, leadership, whether it comes to our stress levels, our sleeping, how we're able to process and, and manage our emotions, whether we are looking to numb some of, you know, some of what we're feeling, either through shopping or alcohol or food or mm. whatever else that may be. I think when we understand who we are, we can eliminate all of those things. The boundaries come naturally. And of course, I'm going to take time for myself then because I understand that managing my energy levels allows me to be better, do better, have better, connect better, all of those things. So for me, they are the three things out of all of the learning, research, studying, experience, all of my clients, it all comes back to those three things. Know yourself and who you are at your core. Set and maintain your boundaries and take time out for yourself. Absolutely. Wonderful. Um, yeah, one of the ways that... Um, so one of the things that I'm mildly fascinated by is um, the... So, so it's a sub-discipline of um, uh, pragmatics or... Um, looking at impression management and how um how we manage impressions and what impression management is and so on and one one mm -hmm. particular part of that is around self-presentation i think on the episode 58 of this podcast i talked about it in a bit more detail so i won't go too much into it today um but it's about this idea of the idealized self so i've got this idealized version of me that i i I want me to be or I see myself to be or I dream myself to be or how I want to be seen, how I want people to know me, what I want to be known for, those things. And when you were describing the the goal that you set yourself as this global HRD at, at was it 30? Was it, was it global HRD? So I was, yeah, but I was HRD at 30. Yeah. I was going to be global by 40. Like that, that was my big, okay. yeah. I look at it now and just think, how ridiculous a goal is that? Also, <laughs> I, I don't think you need to be too harsh on yourself. It's okay. Um, and, but the risk is though, that when we create though that idealized self, um, uh, and because it is idealized, it, we, we, and we can strive so hard to be that thing um that when we then don't meet it um emotionally psychologically that can be really hard um oh hugely you know, yeah. because we, we built it up to be this thing um and, and I, i'm going to give one particular example that um is really kind of specific and detailed but I, I think pulls on what you were describing in that so one of the um one of the things when i when i did a lot of a lot of the know yourself at your core work 
um, one of the realizations I got to quite early on was that um, I really like to help people. I really enjoy helping people, help people grow, develop, really enjoy that. Um, um, but I didn't put any boundary around it. So it would be, I would help people. So what would happen is my, my value and my belief would be, I want, I'm really helpful and I want to help people. And I would do uh-huh. that. Um, and what would happen is I would do that at my own expense. So I would then deprioritize myself. I would deprioritize my work. I deprioritize my time. I deprioritize my activities. And, and I would help other people out. And then I would play catch up on all those other things that would sit around it. Um, uh-huh. And it was only um, later in life, I, couldn't, I it, with more thought, I might be able to, to specify a time, but we'll just go with later. At some point later, I realized that actually that's not really all that great. Um, it might be great for other people, but it's certainly not that great for me. And also it's not necessarily mm-hmm. that great for other people either sometimes because I t- I overcommit and then don't deliver. So mm-hmm. um, so I changed that then to be, um, I'm a really helpful person and not at my own expense. Yeah. You know, so uh, because what had happened in life, I said this self-fulfilling prophecy of, I want to be helpful, I must say yes, I must help that person, I do the help and then I realise I'm struggling and then I, someone else asks me for help and then I do that. So I get to a point where I was being helpful, but yeah, and and and, and hurting, in, in inverted commas, myself at the same time. Yeah, and you're so right with it. And I, and I think lots of us that, I don't know if you want to call it a, a I don't know I don't know if you want to call it a, a calling or or just who just again who we are uh, and our call. But I think particularly those of us that want to help, we we do think we see that as that all giving and it's that cliche, isn't it? Put your own oxygen mask on first. Yeah. Like being helpful doesn't always mean saying yes. Sometimes being helpful is setting that boundary and saying no. Sometimes the, the the helping people is is role modeling a different way of doing it. Sometimes it is asking people to wait or reflect or come back to you when they've got their own answers. Or there's so many different ways in which that that can come up. But I think somehow it's been inbuilt in us. Helping equals people pleasing equals no time for yourself. Yeah. And it's like that's like we. At what point did we think that that was working? Because again, that was that was a huge wake up call for me. Like I genuinely thought I was doing all of this great stuff to help all of these people, and you know, again, change the world of work and show my sons the importance of always providing for your family and being able to put food on the table and working hard and progressing and doing all these things. And then when I stopped, I was of absolutely no use to anybody. Not myself. Not my sons. Not not anybody. Mm. And it was oh right yeah, it is it is it is that cliche. Put your own mask on first because I cannot. And I think again that's a big thing that's changed changed the whole thing for me now. I know I am here to add to this conversation around burnout. I don't have to lead that. Mm. I don't have to be the only person doing that. I do not have to jeopardize myself in in the process. In order to be able to contribute to that conversation, I have to be role modelling all of that because I cannot be part of that conversation if I'm no no longer able to use my voice. And that sounds like a wonderful place to pull it together. Um, Is, um, yeah, so a couple of standard questions, I guess, that I normally ask at the end. Um, Are there any, or no, not are there any, um, what would be some good 
um, things for people to look at or to watch or to read or to listen to if they wanted to to understand more oh I mean I think there's a book coming out soon called Mind the Gap by this wonderful wonderful author called Kelly Swingler um, in addition to that book is there something else or something in, more? in addition to the wonderful book that's coming out by Kelly Swingler uh, I mean again there's there's loads of stuff um, I mean certainly a lot of the podcasts and videos and blogs um, that I've, I've got on my mm-hmm. own website um there are, I mean, if you literally just, even if you just type in, if people are on Instagram, type in burnout in the search on Instagram, and there are psychologists and doctors and coaches and lots and lots of people doing that. I suppose what I would say, again, I, I want to caveat, uh, I suppose I want to caveat this. I believe all of us that are having this conversation, and I'm sure it's the same for you with with the stuff that you do around emotions. I think those of us that are really passionate about doing this are coming at it from a really... Well, I'm I'm definitely, and I I know you Mm. are, Phil, coming at it from a really, really good place Mm -hmm. with research, evidence, understanding, learning, and and all of that stuff that, that sits behind it. There is still a lot of stuff out there about burnout that will basically just tell you to meditate every day and take a holiday. And I I suppose how I would caveat all of that is you've got to take what's right for you. You know, even the three things that I've mentioned, understand who you are, create those boundaries and take time for yourself. Like if they, if there's a gut wrenching thing that says to you, you must be kidding. That's not it. Don't go down that route. I think we've got to be able to look at what it is for us. I can say that that's what I know has worked for me mm-hmm. and has worked for my clients and forms the basis of my books and my workshops and, and everything else. All of the work that I do, I'm sure 10,000 other people would, would say exactly the same thing based on their own experience and, and where they are. Mm-hmm. So there is lots of stuff out there. I think it's understanding what you think you need and and where you want to be able to take that. Of course, I'm going to say you'll be able to do that better when you understand who you are at the core um, to understand what, what feels right for you. Yeah. But, I mean, there's, lot, there's so much stuff out there. Um, I think it would be difficult to kind of say what's, what's right and what, what's not. There is, um, there is a book called Burnout. I haven't got it in front of me. That's okay. You can send me the link afterwards. That's okay. Yeah, Yeah. there is a book called Burnout that was written. I think it's two sisters, actually, that are doctors. And they talk about um, their experience. They come at it from a completely different angle from me. Uh, They were interviewed by Brené Brown. Mm -hmm. They've got a TED Talk and they've got their own podcast. Uh, So I suppose if you want a, a different take... Um, some of the you know a lot of the stuff that they talk about is really really useful I come at some of the things from a completely different angle but maybe that would give people a yeah two sides two sides of the same coin if you like so yeah, yeah that that would be one wonderful fabulous thank you very much um is there someone that you think we should be seeking out to get on as a guest on the podcast Ooh. lots of people um do you have a particular angle that you'd want to take it from uh, well so not necessarily no i mean we, I, I take emotion at work in a really really broad umbrella term anyway so i guess it's the reason i asked the question is because 
sometimes our guests have the, they've read things heard things seen things met things know people that i don't know um and to a certain degree I, i'm after a bit of help in terms of you know finding people that because if you find someone interesting or you find something interesting then you know that's already gone through a layer of of assessment albeit by you to go you know i think this would be really this would be really useful or this would be good or i find this really beneficial so um yeah i asked for that reason so, so it gives me a sense of um tries to keep me outside of an echo chamber where I only ever get on guests that I know or guests that I like um and also tries to amplify other voices as well so yeah okay so you might want to um I've forgotten her name I'm gonna get it up uh Taz Thornton wonderful would be one um there is a lady called I've just forgotten her for I'm sure she's Curtis um, so yeah, Taz Thornton would be one. Wonderful. There is also a an amazing woman called Melanie Curtis. Melanie Curtis, wonderful. Uh, uh, yeah, you'll find her on my LinkedIn connections. So she is, uh, she's an awesome coach. She's also a professional uh, professional skydiver. Oh, and has just done some amazing stuff around this. She did a jump into. Have you seen Angel City FC? No. So Angel City FC, so she's she's based, uh, I think she lives in New York, but Angel City FC are the uh, the first ever um, female-owned and female-chaired football club in the world. Wow. And to launch off Pride, she did a jump into their stadium with an all-female team. But we were talking to her about like what, like how how fast do you go into the stadium? Like, what? How do you know what to do? And her response to that was, I think she's done something like ten or twelve thousand of these jumps. And her response was, I just know how my body feels and I know what I need to do. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. And it was just like how how many of us could uh, could do that. There's also a woman called Alison Holzer, H-O-L-Z-E-R. Yep. Uh, she's got a book called Dare to Inspire, and she does a lot around um, kind of success, creating um, kind of spare time. Like, how, how do you create creative time? How do you create free time? How do you find the time for inspiration in your work and your life? Okay, wonderful. Thank you. There you go. There's three. Fab. If ever you need more, I'm sure I've got. No, no, that's great. No, that's more. wonderful. Have you have you also have you spoken to Tim Roberts? Uh, no. Uh, so Tim Roberts might also be a uh, be a good one. So he does quite a lot with Joe Wright through coaching culture. Okay. And Tim's just had his book this year about break the mold, um, which is basically about cutting through leadership bullshit. Okay. Wonderful. But he talks a lot about, again, how he felt he needed to fit into corporate and what he's changed about himself in realising that being more him has made him a more effective leader. Okay. Fabulous. Four wonderful guests. There you go, Thank to, you. There's some to get you started. Yeah, yeah, You're very welcome. Definitely. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, then. And my final question then um, would be, is there something else then or something more that you're thinking, feeling, or would like to say before we close? No, I don't think so. I, I, my initial thought there, Phil, was there's always more. And then it's like, no, 
this has been I, I've loved this conversation thank you I think as a I, I think as an interview you're very calm very collective very reflective and I and I really like that because again I know I'm mad energy chaos most of the time so thank you for being the calm to my chaos throughout the interview you are welcome I, I wouldn't use chaos to describe you um and at the same time thank you very much so that's good no it's been a pleasure thank you it's really lovely to talk to you so then just let me know what you want me to do to help promote this and all of the rest of the amazing stuff that you do definitely will do wonderful all right well thank you so much for coming on the podcast today kelly you're welcome thanks for having me Phil. all right thank you take care take care bye, bye. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast and if you got this far, you must be interested in the role that emotions have in the workplace, either within individuals, between people in teams or in organisations as a whole. So head over to the Emotion at Work hub, which you can find at community.emotionatwork.co.uk. Thanks for listening.